Here's what we're going to do. If you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, that's what we're going to be looking at. If you guys are new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue this uh, today. We've been taking a look at the life of Jesus. Uh, in particular, we come to a passage today that most of you guys are probably familiar with. It's one of those great stories in the Bible that actually talks about Jesus confronting a guy who is demonized or demon-possessed, however you want to look at it. He was no doubt tormented by a demon, and Jesus restores him and heals him. It's really just one of these great stories. It's a very long story. In fact, it's probably the longest account ever in the entire Bible of someone who has uh, been tormented by demons, who ultimately was healed or rescued from the torment of these demons. So we're going to take a look at this very long account. I'm going to read the whole story. It's about 20 verses. And then uh, I'm going to pray again, just that God would help us. And then we're going to get to work on this passage, trying to understand it. So if you guys wouldn't mind uh, following along, we have all the verses up on the screen. Or if you don't have a Bible, we have a whole little section in the back where you can go pick up a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those. It's not stealing. We're giving it to you. You need a Bible. We want to make sure everybody has a Bible. So that's our little gift to you. So let's read uh, Gospel Mark chapter 5, verse 1. The story goes like this. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the, count, to the country of the Gadarenes. Um, and Jesus, when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched, wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, and he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Then he begged him earnestly not to send him out into the country. Oh, I'm sorry. And he begged him. Uh, uh, back up here. Verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send him, them out into the country. Uh, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So they gave them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down into the steep bank of the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. Then the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that they had, what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were all afraid. And those who had seen it, they described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As they were getting into the boat, a man who had been, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. And he did not permit him to be with him, but instead he said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how that he has showed mercy on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. God, we ask you again right now that you just help us to understand this passage. It's long. There's a lot of things that are, in a lot of ways, very foreign to our culture and the way that we think and the way that we deal with this problem of evil. So we ask you, God, that you would help us to think biblically, 
Help us to be able to understand things through the lens of your word. And God, at the same time, to know how that Jesus is powerful, more powerful than evil, and that he has the ability to overcome evil even in our own lives. So we ask you, Father, that you'd help us, give us strength, guide us, teach us. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those amazing stories. In a lot of ways, it's kind of one of those passages that, for the most part, our culture, the context of our culture wrestles with because it deals with this problem of evil. And I'll get to that in a moment here. But Jesus basically is on this mission. He's a missionary. And what he's doing, he's been sent from God into this world. Primarily, he came to the Jews, and he was doing the majority of his ministry among the Jewish people. Uh, what we had seen last chapter, that Jesus was with his disciples, and they went across the sea, and there was this big, massive storm. Jesus stands up in the boat. He rebukes a tornado, and the tornado stops. And all of a sudden, everybody's tripping out that Jesus obviously has great, greater power than a tornado uh, that had the power that threatened to kill them. And so you'd imagine this is Jesus' typical day in life. He was very busy. He did not even have the ability to take a nap because he was taking a nap in a boat. I mean, just simply taking a nap in a boat would be difficult enough, let alone the fact taking a nap in a boat that's caught in the middle of a tornado would have been even more difficult. Jesus was tired. So you'd imagine, after a very long night like Jesus had endured on the ocean, you'd imagine that he would come to the shore and be met by some sort of resort and hanging out with a bunch of people by the pool and the spa, be treated to you know, a nice back massage. But Jesus, what he does, he gets off the boat, and immediately he's met by a guy who's demonized. The, the trippy guy, the guy that everybody has written off, the guy that everybody has abandoned, the guy that's just simply been left for death there in the tombs. This is, this is what Jesus does on his day off. He's very tired. He's trying to be led by God. He is being led by God. He is being directed and guided by God. He's a missionary. But what happens with Jesus is Jesus leaves the region of the Jewish area there around the seashore of Galilee and goes off into this area that's called the Decapolis. A Decapolis is just kind of a shorter name for 10 cities. It was a sort of region that was kind of viewed by the Jews as being these 10 cities that were unconquered. Um, it goes all the way back in the time of uh, when the Jews had come into the land, they were taking over the territory. There was this area of around 10 cities that were never really conquered by the Jewish people. This is the region of the Decapolis. This is Gentile territory. So if you're a good Jew, you loved God, you, you know, were a faithful Jew uh, to the God of the Bible, uh, you typically would avoid Gentile territory. You would typically avoid area that was given over to Gentile pigs, Gentile dogs, you wouldn't go over there. You wouldn't go hang out over there. You wouldn't go spend time over there. So it's ironic, it's interesting that Jesus says, we're going to the other side. That alone would have kind of been difficult, I'm sure, for the disciples to hear. I mean, the Gentile territory? You mean the Decapolis, Jesus? Are you sure that's where we want to go? And then that kind of puts it into a little bit of an interesting spin or context, because while they're on their journey over there, what happens? Everything gets sort of interrupted with this gnarly tornado. So imagine, they're probably in their mind, they're thinking, we knew we shouldn't have gone over to the Decapolis. We knew we shouldn't have gone over to the other side. God's judging us for going over there. But obviously, that became an opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate his power. Calms the storm, goes to the other side. He's met by this demonized, demon-possessed guy. And what Jesus does is one of these great miracles of healing, whereby he demonstrates his power as being even greater than demonic forces themselves. So what I want to take a look at here today in wrestling with and dealing with this larger concept, this larger issue of evil, because this has to do with demons 
and evil in a magnitude that most of us don't ever rarely deal with or see or work with or even come in contact with. But Jesus did. Been involved in ministry. You've been involved in people's lives, even for any short duration of time, on a very deep level, maybe even in the medical field, or maybe you've worked in mental health, or you've worked with kids that have been abused or sexually abused. You've realized, to some degree, there is this element of evil. So what I want to do today and try to understand this passage, I'm going to take a look at three specific things, basically is this. One, we'll take a look at the reality of evil. Secondly, we'll take a look at the progression of evil and how it progresses and moves forward. And thirdly, we're going to deal with how evil ultimately is conquered, because that's what this text deals with. Deals with the reality of evil, deals with how this evil is progress in the lives of, in this case, a guy who's hanging out by the tombs, and then ultimately how evil is overcome. And then if we have time, we'll finish with a handful of thoughts of a lot of different concepts and ideas that might arise in the text that we'll try to deal with if we have time. So first, let's deal really with the reality of evil. I think this is an important thing for us to really tackle and to try to understand. Because in a lot of ways, we live in a culture today, uh, ever since the Enlightenment, where we've kind of had this notion, this idea, that evil is something that can possibly be overcome. That with enough money, enough education, some form of democracy, uh, Western Enlightenment, we have the ability, with our own strength, to somehow overcome evil. And the reality is, is that we haven't been able to do that yet. Take a look at the next slide. We'll come back to this one in a second here. Just kind of want to show you a picture of like little snapshots. Maybe we can turn off that light real quick and you can see some of these things. These are just a handful of pictures I took from the internet. Obviously, some of them, um, they're, they're real. Some of them, you've seen them for a while. But in a lot of ways, this sort of encapsulates some of the pictures or ideas that we have of evil. I mean, you can see wars. You can see natural catastrophes. You can see a starvation, all these different types of things that we have in our world today that have to do with oppression. Can we turn the lights back on? They have to do with evil. And the reality is, is that for the most part, we as Westerners, we like to assume that evil doesn't exist. We love to just act as if it's not real. And one of the things that happens oftentimes is that we're forced to deal with evil only when evil comes into our face and completely destroys us like a 9-11, or like a hurricane, or like a tornado, or like some other form of catastrophe that just simply destroys many, many people. But for the most part, we as Westerners, we feel very safe, we feel insulated, we feel protected. In a lot of ways, we are very naive to the fact that the world, in a lot of ways, larger world around us, beyond our borders, is literally under this great oppression of evil that is more outwardly uh, dealt with in the way that we oftentimes deal with it. But the point of the matter is, is that what this does is oftentimes, especially in our world, it creates kind of this false perspective, this false idea that evil is just simply out there. And if it does exist, it exists on the nightly news, it exists in the headlines, but it doesn't exist anywhere near me. I mean, after all, right, we live on the central coast. It's beautiful. It's green. It's nice. But the worst thing Central Coast people have to deal with is like in Osos, dealing with the sewage area, the whole big sewer problem, right? Like that's the big issue of evil, right? And we have sort of this false notion of like evil is not that evil. But the problem is, is that evil does exist, even though we might live in sort of a protected area in the world, and we don't have to face it or deal with it. And part of the biggest problem with the arrogance of Westerners is that we tend to think of evil, if we do think of evil, we think of it out there. We think of it in some other way that is 
you know, encapsulated or embodied by a person or a tyrant or a Qaddafi or a Saddam Hussein or Islam or something else, rarely do we ever pause and stop and take a look at the fact that evil perhaps lies in here. It's in our heart. And for us to arrogantly just simply point fingers out there and look at it out there without pausing to take a look at the fact that it's around us, it's perhaps even in us, then what happens is we, again, live under these false notions that it's really not a problem. But when we come across a passage like this, we come face to face with the fact that there is evil, that there is wickedness, that it does exist. The way the Bible is going to describe this is that we are in a battle. We are in a war. There's evil all around us. And unless we come to grips with that and learn how to deal with that in the same way that Jesus dealt with it, then what happens is we end up becoming part of the same evil problem or the problem of evil, and we don't conquer it. We don't overcome it. We just simply become overcome by it. And this happens even in the church. And oftentimes some of the worst forms of evil can actually take place within a church context. And this is where it gets really bad and convoluted. Because you see, even sort of these bastions of hope, like a church, and you think, oh, the church surely is going to be able to conquer evil, right? Well, yeah, but no. Because unless they're aware of all forms of evil that can come in and destroy and deceive and take over, then they become overcome by evil. Not that the church is ultimately going to be destroyed, because I really truly believe the church cannot be destroyed, because Jesus said so. Gates of hell cannot come against his own body, his own church. It won't prevail. But at the end of the day, Satan loves, the devil loves to bring about his influence over the church and bring about destruction if he can. So with that, I want to take a look at a handful of different ways in which the Bible describes or depicts or embodies evil. So take a look at the next slide. And really in the Bible, we see kind of this idea where um, evil is personified and named predominantly in the name Satan. Satan or... uh, Lucifer uh, is typically the name that is given to what's described as the chief devil. It's kind of like, think of it like this, like rankings. You would have the devil as sort of the, the chief ranking officer over the rest of these fallen angels. Now, the Bible tells us that demons or Satan or Lucifer was once an angel. Um, if you want more information on this, several uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I did a series of talks or messages on spiritual warfare. You can find them on our website. They're all for free. You can download them. That might prove to be some benefit of help to you. Hope that it would. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to go into it at length, but I want to try to give you a little bit of snapshots of this because I really want to point out and drive home to us the reality of evil. So the Bible is going to describe sort of different ways in which it depicts and identifies and labels evil throughout the Bible. For one, uh, we see Satan is described as the accuser. What he does is he comes and he accuses you. If you had someone in your life that was always coming to you and telling you how horrible you are, how ugly you are, how stupid you are, how, uh, you know, all these things about you, constantly accusing you, and if it was a human being, if it was a friend of yours, it was somebody that you knew, an acquaintance, you'd be able to stop what you're doing and look at that person and tell them, stop accusing me. That's not nice. You shouldn't be doing that. But if it's invisible and you don't have a body, you don't see somebody, all you hear is a voice coming to you, we typically think you're going crazy, something's not right, and we write it off. But the reality is is the Bible describes that there actually may be an element in which that accusation is demonic. 
There are demonic presences that oftentimes can make their ways into our lives and accuse us. And this is what the devil does. He loves to accuse you, to tell you that you're not worthy, that you're not good, that God doesn't love you. Nobody loves you. You ought to just end your life. You're not worthy to live. You're not worthy even to be at church. You're not a good husband. You're not a good wife. You're not a good parent. You're not a good student. You might as well just end your life now. These are accusations. The reason why these accusations oftentimes come and one of the reasons why we oftentimes don't identify them as accusations is because the Bible tells us that it comes from demonic forces which are, inept, which are invisible. We don't see them. But Satan, nonetheless, is described as an accuser. Secondly, we see he's described as an adversary. 1 Peter chapter 5.8 describes him as one who comes and he stands opposed to us. He stands adverse to us. He comes against us. He's not working for us. You need to know this, that there is nothing good that the devil has in store and plan for you. Now, most of us would look at this and think, well, duh, I would never follow the devil, right? Most of us would never think of that. But the reality is the Bible tells us that there are ways in which we actually do follow the devil, even as Christians. So don't think that you're immune to this. The reality is that even as a Christian, for example, it tells us in, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, put away falsehood, speak the truth one to another, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you with all malice. The point that he's making here is that when we allow ourselves to be full of anger, when we allow ourselves to be bitter, when we allow ourselves to not deal with these things in a way that actually brings God honor and glory, we're actually giving a foothold to the devil. In other words, we are allowing evil influences from the devil to come into our lives and to direct us. We're giving place to the devil. That's an important thing. And he stands opposed to us. Thirdly, we see that he's described in the book of Revelation as Apollyon. The word Apollyon literally means destroyer. Everything Satan, everything the devil seeks to do in our lives is to destroy us. What you'll find in the passage that we just read here is that the devil knows that he's actually a defeated being. And so what happens is like a person that maybe or a group of people or a gang of people that have been caught up in a house and they've held a handful of people uh, hostage, knowing that their time is short, knowing that the cops or the SWAT team is outside and they're about ready to be arrested, about ready to be thrown in jail or maybe even shot, what they do is they sabotage. They take people hostage. They seek to bring destruction upon the house. They might try to burn the house down. They might try to sabotage something. This is exactly what the devil does. He knows he's defeated. He knows his time is short. And so what he does is he seeks to bring sabotage. Some of you, that is the description of your life. Your life has been sabotaged. And you don't even know it. You're not sure why things are so messed up the way they are. You're not sure how you got to the place where you're at. And the answer perhaps is sabotage. The devil has sought to destroy you, to sabotage you. He's called the destroyer or the uh, Apollyon. Uh, fourthly, we see him described as the deceiver. Revelation describes this. And so what we see here in Revelation 12, 9, that he comes and he lies to us. This is the language of the devil. You need to know this, that when we lie... We're actually speaking the language of the devil. This is really powerful. Think about that next time. Next time you lie, next time you lie to your spouse, next time you lie to your boss, next time you lie to your employees, you're actually speaking the language of the devil. That's the language that the devil speaks. He speaks lies. He doesn't tell the truth. God tells the truth. God speaks truth. The devil lies. 
Next, we see, fifthly, that he's the father of lies. Again, we looked at that. Sixthly, he's the tempter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 5. He's a tempter. He comes and he tempts. He does this with Jesus. And typically what the Puritans have kind of noted, there's been some great books written about this many, many hundreds of years ago, describing that one of the ways in which the devil works is he takes the bait and he puts it onto a hook, but he gives us beautiful looking bait, but he uh, hides the hook so we don't see the hook. We don't see what we're getting ourselves into. And so what he oftentimes does is he comes and he tempts us and he makes his appeals to the flesh things that look good to us, things that look tantalizing to us, things that we desperately want, things that we feel that we are owed. I think sometimes this is one of the sweet fruit side effects of bitterness is that we feel entitled to it. Like, I deserve to be bitter. I deserve to be angry. I deserve to bear this grudge because really at the end of the day, it tastes sweet to you, doesn't it? Because you feel entitled to it. And it's part of the trick of the devil to get us to engage to bite the bait, but he discloses, he hides the hook. And once he does this, he traps, he catches. And again, that's what leads ultimately to his destruction. Seventhly, we see him in John chapter 8, verse 44, as described or identified as murder. He is a murderer. Jesus says he is a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. You need to know this, that God seeks to bring life. Satan and his devils seek to bring destruction. So if you look at your life and you see sort of a pattern of deaths, deaths in relationships, deaths in your own life, deaths, things that once were alive to you, things that once were good and tasted good to you, now they're dead to you. You see a series of death throughout your life, the decisions that you make, consequences. Perhaps it could possibly, potentially be that these are evidences of the devil at work in your life bringing about a series of death. Satan doesn't care. The devil doesn't care. It's one of the reasons why he loves to lie. If you've ever had suicidal thoughts, that is not God speaking to you. That's, I don't even think personally that's your flesh. Because we want to survive. We want to live. But it's the devil who says, kill yourself. Die. You're worthless. Nobody cares about you. And if you kill yourself, then you will cause others to feel your pain. You can spread your pain around, and therefore you will get that sense of resolve that you feel so entitled to. The devil is a liar. He loves to bring about death. He loves to bring about destruction. And that's what he seeks to do, and that's what he brings about. And this is what we see sort of interjected into the storyline of this particular passage, that we see a man at the tombs, Literally to the point of death. Not necessarily dying physically, but dying in every other way. He has no relationships, no friendships, no one who loves him, no one who gives him a hug, no one who cares about him. Everyone's afraid of him. Everyone avoids him. Nothing but death throughout his life. That's exactly what the devil loves to do. And that's what we see happening within this particular guy's life. Which brings us to the second thing, which has to do with the progression of evil. What I want to say with regard to this is that when we see this in this guy's life, we see really this sense of power that happens in his life. Um, we see at least three different things that take place. One, we see superhuman strength. So what happens is we see this guy there at the tomb. People try to bind him. They don't know what to do with this guy. They're absolutely at a loss. What do we do with the guy? He's a nut job. He's crazy. He's going ballistic. We don't know what to do with him. Someone suggests throw a bunch of shackles on him. They can't because he keeps tearing the shackles off. Somehow it gets to superhuman strength. What I want you to understand is this. 
there are at least two different ways to view demonic powers. I've said this many times in the past when I've talked about this. There is sort of the supernatural demonic, those things that we would identify as this. This story is no doubt supernatural demonic. But then there's the normal or the common demonic that we've described. And common demonic is whenever we even give place or give spot to the devil by lying. We lie. And that becomes a part of our habitual lifestyle. We lie. We're actually speaking the language of the devil. If we're prideful, we are carrying out the characteristics of the devil because the devil's prideful. This is why pride and arrogance are things not to be celebrated. They're things in which we should be seriously trying to put to death in our lives and helping others to do the same, not in a prideful, not in an egotistical, not in an arrogant way, because therefore you're trying to get rid of evil by evil. It doesn't work that way. But we ought to be working towards humility, living from that particular standpoint. It's one of the reasons why, like I said earlier, bitterness, if we hold grudges, that's a form of vengeance. It's a form of saying, I'm the judge, I know how to judge this thing right, and I will execute judgment upon that person because I know how to do it correctly, I know how to do it properly. It's putting yourself in the place of God. It's one of the reasons why God says, don't be bitter. You don't know how to deal with the issue of unrighteousness in a proper way. Let me deal with it. Let me take care of it. These are footholds that we oftentimes give to the devil. Those are common forms of demonic that we surrender. But the progression of it oftentimes is gradual and slow. It's interesting that in some ways, when we surrender ourselves to demonic activity, what happens is we feel a sense of empowerment. That's what happens with this guy. feels a sense of empowerment. He's very strong. If you, for example, make a job or your career or your vocation ultimate, there will be a sense where you will have greater power than everybody else around you. People will look at you and think, gosh, they've succeeded. They have got everything. They've got lots of money. They've got the fast cars. They've got a nice house. They've got everything they've ever wanted. They're very, very empowered. How'd they get there? They surrendered to something other than God. So what happened to this guy? Was a sense of empowerment. Secondly, we see uh, social isolation, that this man lives isolated, ultimately in a graveyard. So what happens oftentimes is when we make, it's kind of this old story from many hundreds of years ago. It's sort of the, the Faustian bargain. Maybe some of you have heard of that. It's kind of this idea when someone sells their soul to the devil and the devil makes a bargain with them, a deal with them, like, I'll give you power and women and wealth and strength. You give me your soul. And Faust is like, all right, that sounds great. So for several years, he's strong and he's powerful. He's able to get all the women he ever wanted. becomes very wealthy, very rich. Everybody views this guy as a success. But at the end of the day, he's got to give his soul over to the devil or that's the way the bargain typically is going. And this is the idea that oftentimes takes place in our lives. That for some of us, we would look at this and be like, I would never do that. Satan never comes up to us. and See, that's one of the... the mythology of this concept of the Faustian bargain is that Satan never comes up to us and is like, what's up, Slinger? I'll like, give you everything you want. All right, I got power. I'll be your sugar daddy. I'll give you everything you want. Just bow your knee to me. He doesn't do that to us because most of us would be like, no way, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm, I'm a Christian. Like, he doesn't do that. He never does that. Like, that's against my religion. Like, okay. <laughs> doesn't do that. What he does is he comes to us and he plays games with us. And he says, you know what? Remember that person who hurt you 10 years ago, took advantage of you? You should be angry with that person. Yeah, you're right. They did me wrong. That wasn't nice. It wasn't fair. I got mistreated. I 
feel entitled to that, and you hold on to that. And you feel empowered because of that. You feel strengthened. You feel like you have supernatural, superhuman strength to overcome any obstacle because you're empowered by the sense of wickedness and evil. But you would never look at it as that. You would just simply call it justifiable anger. But that leads to isolation. I can't even tell you how many people I've known in the history of pastoring this church and meeting people and knowing people over the years, people that get bitter, they get angry, and they bail. They leave. They leave friendships. They leave church family relationships. They leave love. They leave family. They leave home. That, that church is necessarily home. God's home. But they become isolated, gradually isolated. That's where demonic influence ultimately leads and then finally, we see self-destructive tendencies. And this particular guy, obviously, is that we see him there alone, broken, bruised, bleeding, crying in the tubes, in the tombs, cutting himself, just cutting himself, full of pain, destroyed. That's what, that's what happens. We, leave, we find ourselves just broken, isolated, hurting. And this particular guy, in this particular case, he's so in pain and so perhaps even causing his own self-affliction by cutting himself, literally cutting himself, trying to afflict himself, inflict pain upon himself. We don't know why. Sometimes people in our culture, in our day, will cut themselves, and they will do it because they feel unworthy. They feel as if they've done something wrong. In some ways, it's a form of shedding blood. It's a form of self-atonement. It's really why it is. Sometimes people will cut themselves, they will cut themselves to shed their own blood because in their mind they've done something wrong, they've thought bad thoughts, they've done something that they know has violated their own conscience and they've got to pay for it. They get the idea of justice, so as a form of paying for their own sin, they know that blood has to be shed. That's exactly what the devil would love to get people to believe because it's a belief and a lie because the truth is, is that yes, blood does need to be shed. You sinned. We've all sinned. Blood has to be shed, but it doesn't have to be yours because Jesus shed his blood so you didn't have to. That's the beauty of the gospel. But the twistedness of lies that comes from the devil is only intended to bring about self-destruction, self-mutilation, because that's where this progression of evil goes. And we see this in our culture. We see this in the life and the age in which we live in. We see this in the lives of people's lives. To be quite frank with you, this is, this is one of the diffi most difficult parts of being a pastor and serving and loving people and caring for people and talking with people is seeing the depth and the level of pain that people go through because of the lives of the devil, the lies that the devil throws at them the ways that he seeks to bring about sabotage in their lives, the things that they believe, the things that they hold on to, the things that they hope in, and yet never really can ever come to pass because they're not true. And they latch their lives to these things, and ultimately in the process, there's this process of self-destruction that ends up happening. Deconstruction that takes place. Disintegration. It's the opposite of integrity, by the way. I mean, most of us would look at our lives and think, I want to be a person of integrity. You know what Satan wants, the devil wants, is for you to be disintegrated so that your life wouldn't be united together, integrated, but so that you would be torn apart member by member, limb from limb, heart from body and soul. That's what he does. He seeks to bring about destruction. 
So we see this progression of evil. And some of us might look at this and just think, this guy is an extreme case. But here's the point that I would make. The difference between this guy, who's a very extreme case, and the rest of us who look very normal, we have smiles on the outside, we bring our Bibles to church, we memorize scripture daily, we read our Bibles every day, we go on with what looks to be a very normal life. There's a difference of degrees. That's all it is. It's a difference of degrees. What's the difference between a person who has fifth stage cancer and first stage? It's just degrees. It's bad. First degree, first stage of cancer, left unchecked, left uncared for, at some point, we'll progress to the fifth stage. That's where this guy was at. So this is one of the reasons why we cannot just simply let our lives go on unchecked. This is one of the reasons why we urge you to consider be part of community. Sunday morning is not enough. It's not enough. We love Sunday mornings. I love gathering together with you guys. I love having God's word preached. I love worshiping God together with you guys. I love having the full band. I love the whole experience on Sunday morning. But it's not enough. Because what happens at the end of the day is that we can come into these rooms, uh, a room like this with a lot of people in here, hundreds of people in here, and just simply be anonymous. Nobody knows what's going on in our lives. You can come in here with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. No one knows that you just slept with each other last night. You woke up this morning together, put on your clothes together, took a shower together, came to church. You're not married. No one knows that. We can live in anonymity, and no one really cares. No one really knows. And these are footholds of the devil. He loves to keep us trapped in these places. And the way out of that is we make ourselves known. We be part of community. That's why we have community groups set up. That's why we have places where people join together and get into each other's lives and love each other and serve one another and share each other's burdens and problems and get prayed for and struggles that become brought to the surface that they can be discussed and talked about and other people can establish mentoring type relationships where you can begin to get help and break the strongholds in these elements of power that the devil has exercised over you that the lies can be completely exposed and the truth can prevail and that Jesus can take the proper place in your life and freedom will begin to take its place and ultimately life that leads to joy. That's what I want for you guys, is joy. I want to see you guys joyful in Jesus. Everything else leads to destruction. That's what we see with this guy. At the tombs, in a very advanced state of destruction by the devil. And what we then begin to see is how evil is conquered. What happens, in short, is Jesus comes on the scene and conquers evil. So the question is, how does evil get conquered? Well, in short, the answer is basically this. Evil is conquered only when a greater power overcomes it. Mark intends for us to see that this greater power is Jesus, King Jesus. He comes on the scene. What's amazing to me about this story, and we see almost the very same type of thing that happened last week. Jesus is in the storm. The storm is unmanageable. It's powerful. Uh, the disciples, some of which are actually well-trained uh, sailors. They've been on the Sea of Galilee their whole life. They're experienced. They knew what storms were. This storm, they felt like they were going to die. Jesus stands up, and after taking a nap, and he basically says, stop and stay stopped. That's what he says to a tornado, and it does exactly what he says 
And then he turns to his disciples and begins to talk to them. In the same story here, what happens is Jesus, in the first story, in chapter 4, last part of it, Jesus confronts this storm externally. In this chapter, we see Jesus confronting a storm internally. The only difference is, is where the storm is located. One is external. It's real. It's outside. It's effectual. It's destructive. In this case, the storm is internally. It's destructive, and it's ultimately leaving this guy broken. Jesus comes to this guy who's got demons. What's amazing to me is how Jesus does this. Now, I would look at this and think demons are actually more powerful than a storm, I would think. But what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't, like, come on the scene and be like, okay, guys, stand back. All right, and he whips out a wand. He's like, he's like, oh, we're going to get rid of this guy. He doesn't, like, whip up any, like, weird incantation. He doesn't, like, call down fire from heaven. He doesn't say, like, in the name. He doesn't even, doesn't even give us any indication that he even raises his voice louder than anything normal. Now, think about this. Like, if I were to pick up a bag of groceries, I'm just bend down, pick them up, no big deal. If I had, you know, this panel right here, for me to do that on my own would be next to impossible. But I would have to have someone else help me to come up and pick this up. Now, if I tried it on my own, me picking up the panel would look a whole lot different than me picking up a bag of groceries or picking this up. I'd be like, I'm going pick it up. It's no big deal. Picking up the panel, I'd be like sweating and be like grunting and all sorts of crazy things you guys wouldn't want to see, pull a blood muscle or something like that. But at the end of the day, because picking this up is a whole lot more easier than picking that up, which is a whole lot more difficult. Well, for Jesus, calming a storm and casting out demons, there is no level of difficulty for Jesus at all. All he simply does is he looks at this guy who's possessed by what's described as a legion of demons we don't know exactly how many that is, but we do know that the legion was the largest military commanding unit or military unit within the Roman army. Somewhere between 4,000 to maybe six to 7,000 people. And if that legion is in any way an indication of how many demons were in this guy, there are between maybe 4,000 to 6,000 demons living in this guy. Jesus describes it as a leader. He describes how many are in there as a legion. And Jesus just simply looks at this guy and says... Leave. No sweat, no incantation, no calling down a higher power, just his word. What Mark, I think, wants us to see is the unfathomable power of Jesus. Do you see that in his life? Do you see that in Jesus? That's what Mark wants you to see. He wants us to stand back and be in awe of the power of Jesus. He wasn't just a man. He was the God man. He wasn't just some guy working on behalf of God. He was God. He wasn't just some power that was calling upon a higher power. He is the embodiment of all power. In other words, demons are powerful. Demons have the ability to wreak havoc in a way that is unfathomable. And we see that in our life, in our world. It's unmanageable power at work. We can't control the demons and the demonic powers in this world. We can't. No matter how much our minds may think we have, no matter how much arrogance we think we might have to be able to do that, no matter how much money we think we can throw at it or how much education we can somehow bring into this world, we can't reverse or change or modify or push back the evil. It requires a greater power. And this is what Mark wants us to see is that the greater power has arrived. It's Jesus. He speaks and the power is pushed back. This is unfathomable power. This is power that is displayed through the God-man. And what Mark is ultimately going to begin to show us 
is that this power that Jesus exercises over this demon or over these demons ultimately brings about transformation in this guy's life because what happens are the demons leave and immediately this guy changes. He stops what he's doing, goes, gets, puts some clothes on, he sits down at Jesus' feet, he starts listening to Jesus. I would imagine people were kind of come up and being like, where's the demoniac? Like, people didn't know how to deal with this guy. They were like, they had one goal in mind, avoid him at all costs and make sure that kids don't even see him. Like, the guy's a creep, he's freaky, he's trippy. People finally are kind of showing up out of the woodwork, like, where's the demoniac guy? They're like, you know, the guy that was crazy, he was running around naked, cutting himself, bleeding. He looked like a, you know, heavy metal rock artist and, and, and scaring all the little kids. Where is he at now? It's like, he, there he is. He's sitting down in Bible college. Like, he's there at Jesus' feet. Like, he's changed. He's not the same guy anymore. He's changed. This is what Jesus does. He changes us. He changes people. And that's what happens with this guy. He's radically transformed, radically changed. And Jesus does it at his power, in his power, for his glory, and for this guy's joy. Do you think this guy was happy? Absolutely. He can look at his life and realize he's not oppressed anymore. He's not bound anymore. He's not cutting himself anymore. Did he have scars? Probably. He probably still looked pretty creepy. But he was a renewed, redeemed creepy, kind of like a lot of us. The point of the matter is that the guy was changed. He was a new person, a new creation. God had worked in his life and transformed him, and he's a new being, a new person. Literally what happens is the demonic forces in his life were working to destroy and dehumanize him. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he restores, and he becomes human again. This is absolutely amazing. Some of you need to know this, that the sin that's in your life that you're entertaining, that you're dealing with, that you're letting overcome you, at some point in its progression of its work in your life will work towards your dehumanization. It will destroy you. That's what sin does. Sin seeks to undermine and undo everything God intended to do. God created us in his image and in his likeness so that we would demonstrate his kindness and his goodness in this world. Sin comes in to dehumanize, to destroy every good thing that God intended to do. Jesus comes and restores it. I want to finish with just a few closing thoughts, and I'm done here. First thing is this. It's a handful of things I kind of picked up from the text here. One, this first one's kind of a nice little pithy statement. You can quote it if you want. You can tweet it. There you go. We ought to have hope in no one but hope for everyone. Here's what I mean. Here's this guy. Everyone's written him off. Everyone. Like, what should we do? The demoniac. Like, uh, I don't know. Get rid of him. Throw him in the tombs. We don't, we don't know what to do with this guy anymore. And so what happens is everyone's literally written this guy off. They don't know what to do with him. So I would say this. We don't want to have hope in anyone. We don't want to look at people and say, I trust you. I have hope completely. I place my hope in a person. Don't do that. That's not good. But have hope for people. Here's what I mean. There is this tendency for people to look at other people who have let you down or hurt you, and we think, you know what? They will never change. Don't ever say that. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever had somebody come into your life who's just simply written you off? They will never change. They will always, they always use words like that, always and never. They will never change. They will always be as cantankerous and as lame and as wicked and as 
full of grudges as they always are. They will never change. It's writing someone off. Don't have hope in anyone, but have hope for everyone. This guy was able to be changed. Everyone had written him off, not Jesus. He comes on a scene, and he changes them. Second thing, people in the area of the Gerasenes or Gadarenes, depending on your translation, they love their pigs more than the people. This is a crazy little part in the story where Jesus is confronted by the demons, and they, demons ask him, you know, don't send us off in a judgment yet. Uh, send us into this herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs are now become the new host for these demons, and all these demons lead them down to the water, and they all drown. And what happens is the city hears about this, or the people in the city hear about this. They track Jesus down, and they basically tell Jesus, don't come back. We don't want you around here anymore because you killed our pigs. It's like, yeah, but I, I, I rescued a nut job. Like, I rescued a guy that everyone was afraid of. Like, I rescued him. Yeah, but we don't care about that guy. We care about our pigs. This, to me, honestly, kind of touches on a level of messed up religion. That people who love religious ideas, religious artifacts, religious methodologies will hold on tenaciously to their religion, religious ideas. Even if people are getting saved, even if people are being changed, even if people are being transformed, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that we hold on to what's most valuable. And what happens is you begin to re- reveal to other people what is the most valuable in, a per- in, in someone's life. When someone cannot see the value of someone being rescued and saved, and instead they love something else of lesser value, it just demonstrates that they have created an idol out of something. In this case, they created an idol out of their pigs. Thirdly, Every Christian is in full-time ministry. I love this, because this guy gets healed, comes to Jesus. Jesus is already in the boat. He's getting ready to ship back off onto the other side of the lake. This guy comes out to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you take me with you? Jesus says, no. You need to go back into your city and let everybody see how God has shown mercy to you. So here's the thing. You need to see, and I think this is what Jesus was intending to say to this guy, is that even though you're not going to be numbered or labeled with the apostles, with us, you're still in full-time ministry. You're not off that hook. So here's the important thing I want you to understand. Sometimes there has been this false notion in the modern-day church that what happens is we leave the real work of ministry up to the professionals. Professionals are the guys that get paid. Professionals are the guys that are on the stage. Professionals are the ones that have a nice, big, fancy office and play golf all day long because, of course, that's what us pastors do. Uh, And the reality is we'll leave it to the professionals because they're the ones that know the best. And the reality is this is totally false. This is wrong. This is anti-biblical. The reality is is that all of us, all of you are missionaries. All of you are in full-time ministry. You need to know this. That God has called you to go out wherever he's called you to be a missionary. You're like, I don't know what to say. Jesus just simply says very clearly, let people know what God's done in your life. That's it. You don't have to like memorize four spiritual laws or memorize John Piper's book on sharing the gospel. You don't have to memorize anything. All you need to know is has God done something in my life and what he's done in my life. Can I share that with people? Can tell people about what God's done for me, in me, through me. That's it. Bottom line is this. One of the most amazing things in this whole passage is if you stand back and look at the entire book of Mark, what you see is that Jesus heals this guy, but what ironically happens is that here is this guy in the tombs, broken, bruised, bleeding, isolated, alone, 
and in the place of death, crying out. By the end of the book of Mark, we begin to realize how Jesus was able to conquer evil in his life. What happens is Jesus literally, perhaps more so metaphorically, exchanges places with this guy. The end of the book of Mark, you see Jesus there alone, bruised, broken, bleeding, cut, crying, and ultimately in the tombs. This is how Jesus defeated evil in this guy's life. This is how Jesus has defeated evil in your life. He has literally exchanged places with you. You were once in the place of evil. You were once vulnerable to the vices and devices of the evil one. And yet Jesus has liberated you. He set you free by taking your place. He has become, through his death on the cross, put himself in the place where he was vulnerable, where he was broken, where he was oppressed, where he was afflicted. This is what Mark wants us to see. Why Mark wants us to see why Jesus is not just any king, but he's a good king. He's a king that's worthy to be worshiped and praised. And that's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna sing to him. We have these guys coming up. We're gonna sing and we're gonna respond. We're gonna worship. We'll partake of communion. And as we do, it causes us to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that he was broken for us so that we who are broken could be made whole. That this whole loaf of bread at one time was whole, it was broken in the hands of somebody so that we who partake of it would then be whole. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. We'll worship, we'll sing, we'll confess sin. I invite you to sing with me. Jesus, I just pray for these standing right now. You know what's in their heart. You know the oppressions that they're facing. You know what oppresses them. You know what is destroying them. You know what's occupying their mind and their thoughts even right now. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would bring liberation, bring freedom, bring help, bring salvation. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you've exchanged places with us so that we don't have to sit here bound and crushed and oppressed. We can look to you and see that you are that for us. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters and those that are standing right now that you would just bring into their life the liberation, Jesus, that you desire to bring. For the rest of us, help us to sing joyfully. Help us to sing with all of our might, out of love and affection for you.